Section 52 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one b section fifty two chapter twenty two part two every incident now tended to widen the breach between the king and this powerful subject the queen who lost not her influence by marriage was equally solicitous to draw every grace and favor to her own friends and kindred and to exclude those of the earl whom she regarded as her mortal enemy her father was created Earl of Rivers. He was made treasurer in the room of Lord Mountjoy. He was invested in the office of constable for life, and his son received the survivance of that high dignity. The same young nobleman was married to the only daughter of Lord Scales, enjoyed the great estate of that family, and had the title of Scales conferred upon him. Catherine, the Queen's sister, was married to the young Duke of Buckingham, who was a ward of the crown. Mary, another of her sisters, espoused William Herbert, created Earl of Huntington. Anne, a third sister, was given in marriage to the son of and heir of Grey, Lord Ruthyn, created Earl of Kent. The daughter and heir of the Duke of Exeter, who was also the king's niece, was contracted to Sir Thomas Grey, one of the queen's sons by her former husband and as Lord Montague was treating of a marriage between his son and this lady, the preference given to young Grey was deemed an injury and affront to the whole family of Neville. The Earl of Warwick could not suffer with patience the least diminution of that credit which he had long enjoyed, and which he thought he had merited by such important services. Though he had received so many grants from the crown, that the revenue arising from them amounted, besides his patrimonial state, to eighty thousand crowns a year, according to the computation of Philip de Comines, his ambitious spirit was still dissatisfied, so long as he saw others surpass him in authority and influence with the king. Edward also, jealous of that power which had supported him, and which he himself had contributed still higher to exalt, was well pleased to raise up rivals in credit to the Earl of Warwick and he justified, by his political view, his extreme partiality to the queen's kindred. But the nobility of England, envying the sudden growth of the Woodvilles, were more inclined to take part with Warwick's discontent, to whose grandeur they were already accustomed, and who had reconciled them to his superiority by his gracious and popular manners and as Edward obtained from Parliament a general resumption of all grants, which he had made since his accession, and which had extremely impoverished the crown, this act, though it passed with some exceptions, particularly one in favor of the Earl of Warwick, gave a general alarm to the nobility, and disgusted many, even zealous partisans of the family of York. But the most considerable associate that Warwick acquired to his party was George, Duke of Clarence, the king's second brother. This prince deemed himself no less injured than the other grandees, by the uncontrolled influence of the queen and her relations, and as his fortunes were still left upon a precarious footing, 
while theirs were fully established, this neglect, joined to his unquiet and restless spirit, inclined him to give countenance to all the malcontents. The favorable opportunity of gaining him was espied by the Earl of Warwick, who offered him in marriage his elder daughter, and co-heir of his immense fortunes, a settlement which, as it was superior to any that the king himself could confer upon him, immediately attached him to the party of the earl. Thus an extensive and dangerous combination was insensibly formed against Edward and his ministry. Though the immediate object of the malcontents was not to overturn the throne, it was difficult to foresee the extremities to which they might be carried, and as opposition to the government was usually in those ages prosecuted by force of arms, civil convulsions and disorders were likely to be soon the result of these intrigues and confederacies. While this cloud was gathering at home, Edward carried his views abroad, and endeavored to secure himself against his factious nobility by entering into foreign alliances. The dark and dangerous ambition of Louis the Eleventh, the more it was known, the greater alarm it excited among his neighbors and vassals, and as it was supported by great abilities, and unrestrained by any principle of faith or humanity, they found no security to themselves but by a jealous combination against him. Philip, Duke of Burgundy, was now dead. His rich and extensive dominions were devolved by Charles, his only son, whose martial disposition acquired him the surname of Bold, and whose ambition, more outrageous than that of Louis, but seconded by less power and policy, was regarded with a more favorable eye by the other potentates of Europe. The opposition of interests, and still more a natural antipathy of character, produced a declared animosity between these bad princes, and Edward was thus secure of the sincere attachment of either of them, for whom he should choose to declare himself. The Duke of Burgundy, being descended by his mother, a daughter of Portugal, from John of Gaunt, was naturally inclined to favor the house of Lancaster. But this consideration was easily overbalanced by political motives, and Charles, perceiving the interests of that house to be extremely decayed in England, sent over his natural brother, commonly called the Bastard of Burgundy, to carry in his name proposals of marriage to Margaret, the king's sister. The alliance of Burgundy was more popular among the English than that of France. The commercial interests of the two nations invited the princes to a close union. Their common jealousy of Louis was a natural cement between them, and Edward, pleased with strengthening himself by so potent a confederate, soon concluded the alliance and bestowed his sister upon Charles. A league, which Edward at the same time concluded with the Duke of Brittany, seemed both to increase his security and to open to him the prospect of rivaling his predecessors in those foreign conquests which, however short-lived and unprofitable, had rendered their reign so popular and illustrious. But whatever ambitious schemes the king might have built upon these alliances, they were soon frustrated by intestine commotions, which engrossed all his attention. These disorders probably arose not immediately from the intrigues of the Earl of Warwick, but from accident, aided by the turbulent spirit of the age, by the general humor of discontent which that popular nobleman had instilled into the nation, and perhaps by some remains of attachment to the house of Lancaster. The hospital of St. Leonard's, near York, had received, 
from an ancient grant of King Athelstane, a right of levering a thrave of corn upon every plough-land in the county, and as these charitable establishments are liable to abuse, the country people complained that the revenue of the hospital was no longer expended for the relief of the poor, but was secreted by the managers and employed to their private purposes. After long repining at the contribution, they refused payment. Ecclesiastical and civil censures were issued against them, their goods were distrained, and their persons thrown into jail, till, as their ill-humor daily increased, they rose in arms, fell upon the officers in the hospital, whom they put to the sword, and proceeded in a body fifteen thousand strong to the gates of York. Lord Montague, who commanded in those parts, opposed himself to their progress, and having been so fortunate in a skirmish as to seize Robert Holdern, their leader, he ordered him immediately to be led to execution, according to the practice of the time. The rebels, however, still continued in arms, and being soon headed by men of greater distinction, Sir Henry Neville, son of Lord Latimer, and Sir John Conyers, they advanced southwards, and began to appear formidable to government. Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, who had received that title on the forfeiture of Jasper Tudor, was ordered by Edward to march against them at the head of a body of Welshmen, and he was joined by five thousand archers under the command of Stafford, Earl of Devonshire, who had succeeded in that title to the family of Courtney, which had also been attained. But a trivial difference about quarters having begotten an animosity between these two noblemen, the Earl of Devonshire retired with his archers, and left Pembroke alone to encounter the rebels. The two armies approached each other near Banbury, and Pembroke, having prevailed in a skirmish, and having taken Sir John Neville prisoner, ordered him immediately to be put to death, without any form of process. This execution enraged without terrifying the rebels. They attacked the Welsh army, routed them, put them to the sword without mercy, and having seized Pembroke, they took immediate revenge upon him for the death of their leader. The king, imputing this misfortune to the Earl of Devonshire, who had deserted Pembroke, ordered him to be executed in a like summary manner. But these speedy executions, or rather open murders, did not stop there. The northern rebels, sending a party to Grafton, seized the Earl of Rivers and his son John, men who had become obnoxious by their near relation to the king and his partiality towards them and they were immediately executed by orders of sir john conyers there is no part of english history since the conquest so obscure so uncertain so little authentic or consistent as that of the wars between the two roses historians differ about many material circumstances some events of the utmost consequence in which they almost all agree are incredible and contradicted by records and it is remarkable that this profound darkness falls upon us just on the eve of the restoration of letters and when the art of printing was already known in europe all we can distinguish with certainty through the deep cloud which covers that period is a scene of horror and bloodshed savage manners, arbitrary executions, and treacherous, dishonorable conduct in all parties. There is no possibility, for instance, of accounting for the views and intentions of the Earl of Warwick at this time. 
it is agreed that he resided together with his son-in-law the duke of clarence in his government of calais during the commencement of this rebellion and that his brother montague acted with vigor against the northern rebels we may thence presume that the insurrection had not proceeded from the secret councils and instigation of warwick though the murder committed by the rebels on the earl of rivers his capital enemy forms on the other hand a violent presumption against him he and clarence came over to england offered their service to edward were received without any suspicion were entrusted by him in the highest commands and still preserved in their fidelity soon after we find the rebels quieted and dispersed by a general pardon granted by edward from the advice of the earl of warwick but why so courageous a prince if secure of warwick's fidelity should have granted a general pardon to men who had been guilty of such violent and personal outrages against him is not intelligible nor why that nobleman if unfaithful should have endeavored to appease a rebellion of which he was able to make such advantages but it appears that after this insurrection there was an interval of peace during which the king loaded the family of neville with honors and favors of the highest nature he made lord montague a marquis by the same name he created his son george duke of bedford he publicly declared his intention of marrying that young nobleman to his eldest daughter elizabeth who as he had yet no sons was presumptive heir of the crown yet we find that soon after being invited to a feast by the archbishop of york a younger brother of warwick and montague he entertained a sudden suspicion that they intended to seize his person or to murder him and he abruptly left the entertainment soon after there broke out another rebellion which is as unaccountable as all the preceding events chiefly because no sufficient reason is assigned for it and because so far as it appears the family of neville had no hand in exciting and fomenting it it arose in lincolnshire and was headed by sir robert wells son to the lord of that name the army of the rebels amounted to thirty thousand men but lord wells himself far from giving countenance to them fled into a sanctuary in order to secure his person against the king's anger or suspicions he was allured from this retreat by a promise of safety and was soon after notwithstanding this assurance beheaded along with sir thomas dymock by orders from edward the king fought a battle with the rebels defeated them took sir robert wells and sir thomas Londy prisoners and ordered them immediately to be beheaded edward during these transactions had entertained so little jealousy of the earl of warwick or duke of clarence that he sent them with commissions of array to levy forces against the rebels but these malcontents as soon as they left the court raised troops in their own name issued declarations against the government and complained of grievances oppressions and bad ministers the unexpected defeat of wells disconcerted all their measures and they retired northwards into lancashire where they expected to be joined by lord stanley who had married the earl of warwick's sister but as that nobleman refused all concurrence with them and as lord montague also remained quiet in yorkshire they were obliged to disband their army and to fly into devonshire where they embarked and made sail toward calais the deputy governor whom warwick had left at calais was one valclair a gascon who 
seeing the earl return in this miserable condition, refused him admittance, and would not so much as permit the Duchess of Clarence to land, though, a few days before, she had been delivered on shipboard of a son, and was at that time extremely disordered by sickness. With difficulty he would allow a few flagons of wine to be carried to the ship for the use of the ladies, but as he was a man of sagacity, and well acquainted with the revolutions to which England was subject, he secretly apologized to Warwick for this appearance of infidelity, and represented it as proceeding entirely from zeal for his service. He said that the fortress was ill-supplied with provisions, that he could not depend on the attachment of the garrison, that the inhabitants, who lived by the English commerce, would certainly declare for the established government that the place was at present unable to resist the power of England on the one hand, and that of the Duke of Burgundy on the other, and that, by seeming to declare for Edward, he would acquire the confidence of that prince, and still keep it in his power when it should become safe and prudent to restore Calais to its ancient master. It is uncertain whether Warwick was satisfied with this apology, or suspected a double infidelity in Vauclair, but he feigned to be entirely convinced by him, and having seized some Flemish vessels which he found lying off Calais, he immediately made sail towards France. The King of France, uneasy at the close conjunction between Edward and the Duke of Burgundy, received with the greatest demonstrations of regard the unfortunate Warwick, with whom he had formerly maintained a secret correspondence, and whom he hoped still to make his instrument in overturning the government of England, and re-establishing the house of Lancaster. No animosity was ever greater than that which had long prevailed between that house and the Earl of Warwick. His father had been executed by orders from Margaret. He himself had twice reduced Henry to captivity, had banished the queen, had put to death all their most zealous partisans either in the field or on the scaffold, and had occasioned innumerable ills to that unhappy family. For this reason, believing that such inveterate rancor could never admit of any cordial reconciliation, he had not mentioned Henry's name when he took arms against Edward, and he rather endeavored to prevail by means of his own adherents, than revive a party which he sincerely hated. But his present distresses and entreaties of Louis made him hearken to the terms of accommodation, and Margaret being sent from Angers, where she then resided, an agreement was, from common interest, soon concluded between them. It was stipulated that Warwick should espouse the cause of Henry, and endeavor to restore him to liberty, and to re-establish him on the throne, that the administration of the government, during the minority of young Edward, Henry's son, should be entrusted conjointly to the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Clarence, that Prince Edward should marry Lady Anne, second daughter of that nobleman, and that the crown, in case of the failure of male issue in that prince, should descend to the Duke of Clarence, to the entire exclusion of King Edward and his posterity. Never was confederacy on all sides less natural or more evidently the work of necessity, but Warwick hoped that all former passions of the Lancastrians might be lost in present political views, and that, at worst, the independent power of his family and the affections of the people would suffice to give him security, and enable him to exact the full performance of all the conditions agreed on. 
the marriage of prince edward with the lady anne was immediately celebrated in france edward foresaw that it would be easy to dissolve an alliance composed of such discordant parts for this purpose he sent over a lady of great sagacity and address who belonged to the train of the duchess of clarence and who under color of attending to her mistress was empowered to negotiate with the duke and to renew the connections of that prince with his own family she represented to clarence that he had unwarily to his own ruin become the instrument of warwick's vengeance and had thrown himself entirely in the power of his most inveterate enemies that the mortal injuries which the one royal family had suffered from the other were now past all forgiveness and no imaginary union of interests could ever suffice to obliterate them that even if the leaders were willing to forget past offences the animosity of their adherents would prevent a sincere coalition of parties and would in spite of all temporal and verbal agreements preserve an eternal opposition of measures between them and that a prince who deserted his own kindred and joined the murderers of his father left himself single without friends without protection and would not when misfortunes inevitably fell upon him be so much as entitled to any pity or regard from the rest of mankind clarence was only one and twenty years of age and seems to have possessed but a slender capacity yet could he easily see the force of these reasons and upon the promise of forgiveness from his brother he secretly engaged on a favorable opportunity to desert the earl of warwick and abandon the lancastrian party during this negotiation warwick was secretly carrying on a correspondence of the same nature with his brother the marquis of montague who was entirely trusted by edward and like motives produced a like resolution in that nobleman the marquis also that he might render the projected blow the more deadly and incurable resolved on his side to watch a favorable opportunity for committing his perfidy and still to maintain the appearance of being a zealous adherent to the house of york after these mutual snares were thus carefully laid the decision of the quarrel advanced apace lewis prepared a fleet to escort the earl of warwick and granted him a supply of men and money the duke of burgundy on the other hand enraged at that nobleman for his seizure of the flemish vessels before calais and anxious to support the reigning family in england with whom his own interests were now connected fitted out a larger fleet with which he guarded the channel and he incessantly warned his brother-in-law of the most imminent perils to which he was exposed but edward though always brave and often active had little foresight or penetration he was not sensible of his danger he made no suitable preparations against the earl of warwick he even said that the duke might spare himself the trouble of guarding the seas and that he wished for nothing more than to see warwick set foot on english ground a vain confidence in his own prowess joined to the immoderate love of pleasure had made him incapable of all sound reason and reflection the event soon happened of which edward seemed so desirous a storm dispersed the flemish navy and left the sea open to warwick the nobleman seized the opportunity and setting sail quickly landed at dartmouth with the duke of clarence the earls of oxford and pembroke and a small body of troops while the king was in the north engaged in suppressing an insurrection which had been raised by lord fitzhugh 
brother-in-law to Warwick. End of section 52, chapter 22, part 2, recording by Robert Hoffman.